Welcome to the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast from Nashville, Tennessee. I am your host, John Martin Keith. Celebrities, working class musicians, and people who work behind the scenes in all areas of the music industry will share their stories, encourage you, and give practical advice of ways you can make a living doing what you love in the music industry. This episode is brought to you by Edenbrook Productions. Edenbrook Productions is the company I founded to help musicians grow in their craft. Are you a songwriter, but maybe you've been told your songs aren't quite there yet? Or are your songs ready, but you don't feel stage ready? Or maybe music is your passion, but you feel imprisoned by your day job and you don't know what to do next to make your dream a reality. Well, Edenbrook Productions is here to help. We offer consulting services via phone call, Skype, and FaceTime. And for the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast listeners, we're offering an introductory one-hour consultation special. Click on the link in the show notes to contact me, and let's get you making a living in the music industry. Hey guys, welcome to the show today. I'm very excited for you to meet my friend Dave Cleveland. Dave is a first-call A-list session player, guitar player here in Nashville, and he has worked with multiple artists across multiple genres. Uh, He's worked with Miley Cyrus, Little Big Town, Russ Taff, Stephen Curtis Chapman, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. He's even got to play at multiple presidential inauguration balls. How cool is that? I'm super excited because I've been a huge fan of Dave myself as a guitar player. I've listened to him since I was in high school. And all the different projects he's been a part of is just such a cool thing. And so I'm really excited for you to hear the story of how he has built his career over the years as a guitar player doing session work and live work. So for those of you that are looking to get into or you're actively trying to be successful in that particular area of the music business, this is for you. So get your pen and pad and get ready to take lots of notes. All right, I'm hanging out here with Mr. Dave Cleveland. How are you today, sir? Great. Thank you, Marty. Doing great. Good. Good, 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 good to see you. Good it's to good be to here. see you. Thank you yeah. for having me over to your studio. Yeah, this glad is super, to be here. Super cool. I love when I see walls of guitars. <laughs> it's like my dream come true. And then and and guitar pedals and all kinds of effects things. I'm just like kind of in heaven when yeah I see this kind of stuff. So. Yeah, I, me too. It never changes. I'm st- I still love gear. Yeah, it's just like can't help it. Yeah, yeah, and. And this is a, a small dream come true for me because I'm a huge fan of you and your music well, and your you. guitar playing. I've listened to you for years on different recordings. And so just to get to sit down and hang out with you for a bit is is a big pleasure for me. So thank, thank you. you. Um, I'm honored to be here. Yeah. So for the listeners, you are you're a guitar player. You are a session player. Yes. And you're a touring guitar player for lots of different artists over y- the years. Yes. Um, so... Let's let's kind of backtrack just a minute, yeah, and tell everybody where you're from, okay, and how you got into music to begin with. Okay, great. Well, I was born in Alexandria, Virginia, and uh, my dad was a guitarist, and my mom sang. They had a group called the Side by Side Trio, okay, and uh, of course they had a bass player in the group, and so from a young age, um, music was always kind of around, and I always heard it. And I enjoyed it. My mom told me that this will this will age me a little bit. <laughs> After the uh, Magical Mystery Tour album came out by the Beatles, mm-hmm. we had a a little phono player with with a headphone jack, and my mom said that I would sit and just listen to that album over and over and over. I, I guess. I'm not. I can't remember exactly what year it came out, but when I listened to it, it was about 1970. I was about six years old, and so from early, early on, I just I was fascinated by sound. And of course, that record, you know, was just an amazing uh, mix of all kinds of genius kind of sounds and parts. And so I think that kind of made a big influence on me as a kid. But mm-hmm. I didn't start playing guitar until I was about. 12 or 13 is you know kind of when I picked it up but I can remember when I was 14 years old that it's all I wanted to do mm-hmm. and I had a motorcycle it was a YZ80 and I took in I sold it we had just moved down to Fredericksburg Virginia where my family is now and 
I sold the motorcycle and I went to Picker Supply and I bought a 1972 ES325 Gibson. And that was my first real guitar. That was that was me at 14 saying, this is what I'm going to do. Right. I didn't get any taller for sports. So I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be a basketball player. Right. This is my thing. This is my thing. <laughs> And I just I just loved it. So uh, at that point, um, I started playing, and I actually traded the 325 about a year later for an, a 1970 Fender Telecaster because I loved Roy Buchanan, and the sounds that Roy Buchanan got out of his Telecaster. I was like, ah, oh, I want to I want to play Telecaster. Mm-hmm. So um, from 14 through 18, I was you know. I was in the school jazz band. I learned to read music. Um, my, my dad was out of the picture when I was probably about 11. He had left. Okay. Um, so I just, I took it upon myself because he had told me at some point, son, you, you need to learn how to read music. So I learned at, a, at an early age. And it really helped me because I, when I auditioned for the jazz band, I could read the music. You know, right. even if it was simple chords. I knew all my chords. I'd been through the Mel Bay, you know, okay, chord so book. You were self-taught through through guitar books, basically, or did you take did, did you take lessons from I never, anyone? I never took lessons. Okay, um, I, I I did jump into books yeah. to learn a lot of things, um, but I also listened to a lot of music and would try to emulate the sounds that I heard. Now back then we were on record players, right? So I would have to um, a, a lot of times I would wait the needle down to slow the record down. <laughs> so I would, depending on how, how fast I wanted it to, to spin, I would put either a penny or a nickel or a quarter, nice, you know, to yeah, get, yeah. to slow that record down enough. Uh, I remember when I was 15, I learned the solo to, I know a little by Leonard Skinner. And I learned it note for note. And I, boy, I had to slow it down and listen over and over and over. Like a half dollar on the needle. Yeah, it might have been. <laughs> yeah. I might have had my brother hold his thumb down on it at that point to get it slow enough. But that's funny. I never, I've never even heard of that, of doing that to weight down a needle to slow down the record. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, that's, I, you know, I didn't know either. I just knew I needed that thing to slow down. Yeah. So that's what I did. Okay. Um, but I, I, you know, I was diligent with my practicing. Even as a kid, I was very self-motivated to, because I knew that to get to the, the point I wanted to get to and and play like the people that I was listening to, it took a lot of work, you know, because when I was a kid, I would read all the guitar player magazines and I was a big fan of the Tommy Tedesco studio log column. And I would, I'd always look, okay, how much did he make for that record? Oh, he played a bazooki on that. And he, and he played a uh, nylon string and he worked two and a half hours and he made $500. And right. it was very inspiring to me to, to see that you could make a living with this music that you love and that you can't get away from anyway. So right. you might as well figure out how to make a living with it. Right. Um, okay. So that's interesting that you learned everything out of a, out of the Mel Bay books pretty much. And then just listening and learning. Um, and I think that's, it's great information for people, you have to, you have to be able to read. If you're, if you're going to make a living at it, you've got to be able to read charts. You got to know somebody's going to lay something, especially when you get to a big, a big music city and someone lays a chart in front of you and says, okay, here's what we're playing. Right. You know, you've got to be able to read it. Otherwise you're out of luck. Yes. Now in Nashville, there's a little bit of an exception in Nashville because a lot of the great players didn't necessarily, they didn't read like notations things, right. but they did read what's called the number system. Right. Yeah. And so they, they applied the number system to what they're doing and, and how they read their music. And, and there's a lot of the notation that is in the number system. That's the same. Like all the rhythms are always going to be the same, sure. whether you're reading a note or a number. Right. So, um, but, but for me, I, I wanted to be able to do orchestra dates and I wanted to be able to do dates with the symphony. And and I wanted to get the call that, like, you know, I played for um, the President Trump's uh, inauguration ball. They called okay. me because I could read all of the, the notes. And, and you know, it wasn't like, well, I got to learn it. It was like, no, you got to be able to come in and read it. Yeah. So th- there have been things like that have that have opened doors for me time and time again in, in the music business. Because I could read notes i could read the number system um 
you know, it just, I think it's an important thing. Yeah. So that's interesting that you mentioned the inauguration that you played for that, because I know the guy who was the, the music director put that, put all the music together for that event. Yeah. All of that. Yeah. So the fact that you, he's probably the guy who called you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. For that. That's amazing. So that's super cool. Man, it's just a small world. (laughs) It is small. Such a small world, especially in music. Oh Uh, yeah, totally. So what brought you after Virginia? Yeah. Um, did you go to college for music? No, I didn't. Okay. I I went to I went to Florida and lived with my dad in 1982 after I graduated, and I did study with a, a jazz guitarist named Frank Mullen okay. for about a year. Uh, and I, you know, I, I'm probably not going to get way deep into my personal life at yeah. that time, but um, I can tell you this: from the age of about 13 to 20, I struggled with drugs. Yeah, and um, so music somehow kept me on the rails, mm-hmm. and uh, and at at twenty years old, I my life turned around and got back on a path that I am on now. And um, but I did study with this this gentleman Frank Mullins, who was a terrific guitarist, and uh, I was able to get a little deeper into theory and a little deeper into reading and chord voicings and. Mm-hmm you know, harmonic things and all that. And, um, yeah. So you did spend some time learning from a teacher, you know? So what I love is that you've, you've taken a mix of everything. Yeah. You've, you ear training. Yes. Books from some of the best players ever. Yes. And learning in person from some of the best teachers ever. Yeah. You know, and able to take all of those things and mix it up and create your own, sound yeah you know which is fantastic so yeah what brought you to nashville is that is that where you went is that where you came from from florida no but but let me let me tell you what happened um when i was 21 i was back in virginia and i was working at that same little music store that i had bought my guitar from picker supply and um and uh the the owner brand dillard still a, a dear friend of mine um there's a lot that that's happened sure. just in the last couple months up there that I've done, but um, went back to Virginia and was working at the music store, teaching a little bit, and I got a call from um, Roger Breland. He was the the owner and the director of a group called Truth. Yep. And Truth was a group that traveled about three hundred and twenty five to thirty five days a year, mm-hmm. and he asked me if I would like to join and I was, I was so excited cause I was like, Oh, this is great because they have records. I, I mean, I ran to the, the local Christian bookstore and bought their records mm-hmm. and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is a, a group that really is recording. It. They're yeah. doing it. And they've asked me to come be the guitar player. So I was, I was so excited and I got on the road with truth and there it's basically a four to five piece rhythm section four to five piece horn section, depending on the, the, the time, and eight singers. Sound man, monitor man, lighting person. So it it was a big group. Yeah, big and production. we were all on one bus. Oh, wow. And a truck. We had a truck and a bus. And I've got to tell you, Marty, we talk about school and college and things like that. That really was college for me. Yeah. Because I was in the group for three years. And I walked on that bus... Um, the thing that I was into when I got into truth was Stanley Jordan. And I don't know if you know who he is, but he, he really took the tapping two hand playing to another level. Okay. So, and he would actually tune his guitar in fourths. So it was like E A D G C F Hmm. so that, so that all of the patterns works exactly the same all the way up and down the, the fretboard. Yeah. Okay, so imagine this. I'm 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 into that kind of stuff, you know, playing songs like Eleanor Rigby and you know, two-hand tapping. More is more for me. <laughs> yeah. So I walk into this situation where there's no room for me to play that kind of guitar. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first couple nights I was doing my thing and and you know, in my mind I'm like, "Man, I am killing this." 
this is great. They've got to be so impressed with me because I'm playing all these notes and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all these chord voicings and these extra things. And, and they were, you know, I was, I just thought I was doing the, you know, I was like, how grateful should they be to have me in their (laughs) band? And then the drummer, Kevin Newton came up to me after two or three nights and he's like, uh, yeah. So, um, we need you to listen to the parts again that are on the record because you're playing way too much. And Kevin was a pretty big guy. He was a little bit intimidating. And I was like going, oh, man, I'm, I'm so sorry. And so my parts went from, you know, flailing and playing everything I could think of to, um, I'll give you an example. Like, so three, four, bump, bump, ba-dum, <laughs> no tapping the tapping went by the wayside right but it was the best thing in my life Hmm. because at up to that point i'd always been about you know playing jazz playing like van halen playing stanley jordan danny gatton I, i wanted to you know have all of those come through my playing so people could say wow he's a great guitar player yeah but but at that point and it was the greatest thing for me to learn, and it f- affected my whole career after that point, was you have to play for the song. Right. And to this day, when, when you're playing on a record uh, or an artist's record, you have to listen to everything around you. You have to listen to the vocal. You have to know where your spots are to add, and you have to know where to not play. Right. And being in truth for three years helped fine tune that idea of being a parts player as opposed to just a, you know, everything player. Right. So that's great. That's good information. That's stuff that the audience needs to hear is knowing when and when not to play something because you're trying to fill in space. You're trying to fill in gaps. Right. You know, the drums are doing something, the bass is doing something, the horns are doing something. You're trying to fit in between those spaces, not on top of those spaces. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious is how did they how did truth find you like why did truth call you if you hadn't been doing anything because this from what you're telling me so far this was your introduction into the touring world right and what an introduction because truth is a huge group especially back then they were like yeah. one of the biggest Christian music bands there was yeah you know and that's your introduction into that world right so um, when I was in Florida, and um, I became a Christian, and I went to a church called Westside Baptist Church. And one Sunday, they had the local pastors' conference there, and there was a, a young man named Joe Hogue who was playing piano back then. He was 18, and he was a phenomenal, crazy, great player. But he also was back even back then. He had started programming music, mm-hmm. which was very early on, you know, uh, the Lynn drum machine. And I don't even know if the QX1 Yamaha was out at that point, but he was programming music. So I came over to his church and started writing music with him. Okay. Not long after that is when I moved back to Virginia. So Joe and I stayed friends. Well, they found Joe through recommendations and hired him to be the keyboard player for truth. Gotcha. And Joe told them about me Okay. and he goes, you have to hire Dave because he thought I was a really great player back okay. then. Yep. And um, so that's how the introduction happened. And so this is another great point uh, as we're talking about music and career choices and things like that. I've always really tried to, in my heart, not ever burn bridges with people. And I always try and do the best I can, no matter what I'm doing. If I'm doing, like going over to that church and writing some songs and playing some guitar, I I never check out and go, well, this isn't that important. Everything is always important to me, hmm. no matter what I'm doing, no matter who's called me to play, if it's a demo, if it's a master, uh, if it's for free. It's like the reason I do the best I can is because... I'm supposed to. Mm-hmm. I just, I want to do the best I can do always. Sure. Now, what I found is by doing that and always trying to have a good attitude, like 
like with Joe, I could have gone, oh, this is stupid. I don't want to do this. This is, you know, you're, you're over here at a church just goofing around. But I didn't do that. I treated it as it was the most important thing I was ever going to do. And it kind of was because it opened up a whole uh, chain of events. Yeah, it launched your career, basically. That launched me into what I'm doing now. Yeah. So I would, I would encourage people that are listening. It's like, always do your best and always have a great attitude. I mean, sometimes you're going to be in situations that you're not going to be happy about. I mean, on the, on the bus with Truth, staying in host homes every night and playing in different churches every night and not knowing... There's a lot of opportunity for you to, to go, eh, I don't really, I'm not feeling this today. Yeah. You know, I'm not in a good mood. I don't, I don't have a good attitude and whatever. And that's when you have to check your heart and just go, you know what? I'm, if I'm thankful to be here, then it changes me. Right. It changes the whole attitude of things. And it changes and affects the people around you. And the people around you um, start to look at you and go, and this this guy's pretty cool to be around because he he's usually a has a good attitude and positive and you know yeah so anyway I it it, it all ties into just being grateful and and doing your best always I think yeah and I completely agree and it's interesting you know almost every episode of this show <laughs> people are probably sick to death of hearing this by now but it's just something that's reiterated all the time. Mm. Is that it comes? It comes back to relationships. Yeah, you've built relationships and uh, and being around people that are enjoyable to be with. Yeah, you know, if you're hard to get along with, especially you're out with 18, 20 people, oh that's goodness. a huge group of people to be with. Right. You know, that is that makes up the band. It's not just production crew people. Right. It's you know, it's the band and it's the artists and the singers and everything. Right. You know, so if you're hard to get along with, nobody wants to be around you you know, and vice versa. So, yeah, you know, so that's great information, um, you know, just to be able to share that. So I uh, appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. So you were in truth for three years. Yes. And then, so from that point on, uh, well, where did you go to next? And is it basically at this point, just kind of word of mouth? Like, are you sending out business cards or putting up flyers, letting people know who you are? Is it just because you've built, you spent three years in truth and you're touring all over the place. People are starting to see you up on stage and thinking, this guy's a great guitar player. Or like, what's, how are you starting to make connections with other people in the industry that are wanting you to come and play for them now? Okay, so this, this is probably not what you're going to want to (laughs) hear. I I want, no, I want to hear it. Tell me. So after truth, uh, my wife and I, Tammy, who've been, we've been married 32 years now. We, she came out the last year I was with Truth. We got married and okay. she traveled the last year. After Truth, we went back to Fredericksburg, Virginia, and I stopped playing guitar professionally. No, I did not want to hear that. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> so uh, I went back and, and I worked back with Picker Supply again with my friend Bran and um, now why? I mean, maybe you're going to tell me this anyway, but why did you decide I'm going to stop playing professionally? Um. If, if you can say that. There were still some things about guitar and music that had been, um, I, don't, I don't know how to explain it. My dad told me this, he looked at my situation one day and he, he said, son, I think, I think you're kind of like um, uh, what Moses had to do when, he, when God said, what's that in your hand? And he said, it's a staff. And, and God said, throw it down on the ground. Mm. And basically it, turned to a snake and then it turned back to a staff and he picked it back up right and and in some ways i felt like my dad said yeah you had to throw your guitar down for a while because there's some things god needed to do in your heart sure yeah and so um so anyway i i stopped playing professionally um and just did that and tammy and i became youth pastors at a church uh, living word fellowship in fredericksburg virginia and two years there playing in the worship band but not playing professionally. And then we got a call from that same friend that I was telling you about earlier, Joe Hogue. Right. The keyboard player that went to, yeah. Joe was in town. He and his wife, Cher, uh, had moved here and had started, he had started producing records. He moved here to Nashville? He moved to Nashville. Okay. And he he actually produced uh, or helped, 
I don't I, don't, I can't remember which DC Talk Records. Maybe Jesus Freak. Maybe the one before that. But he was deeply involved in programming most of those okay. songs. This was a little after that time, but anyway, he had been producing and working on records. Paul Smith, I think, and Mike Eldred and other other people. So he goes, "Hey, why don't you why don't you and Tammy come down for vacation, hang out with us, and um, you know, just check out Nashville." So we're like, "Yeah, that sounds good." And uh, we came down and we stayed here about a week and. While I was here, Joe was producing a record, and I went over and hung out with him. And he was overdubbing. I think Lisa Bevel was doing some overdubs, background vocals. And he goes, hey, why don't you put a part on this record? There's a part in the the second verse that needs a guitar thing that we didn't do. And I'm like, dude, I'm I'm not the guy. I mean, I'm not really even playing anymore. He goes, oh, come on. He goes, I know you can play guitar. Just just put a part down. So he went and got a guitar, plugged me in direct to the console, and I played a part. And right after that, it, Tammy was with me. We both got in the car and we looked at each other. It was almost it was it was definitely a moment. Yeah. And we both were like we're supposed to do this. Mm. And it was like, oh my goodness, we had just bought a little condo up in Fredericksburg and you know, we were working at the church. I had a job. Tammy had a job. But it was so real and so strong that we were supposed to do this. It was almost like God was saying, okay, pick it back up. Yeah. And you're ready. And so within six months, it was August of 90, we moved down here. I think it was April somewhere that we had come down for vacation. So August 90, we had moved down here. I had a Zion guitar just sitting over there that yeah. white one. Oh yeah uh i had a pierce solid state amp i had a fernandez telly and i had a gut string and that was it i had no effects i didn't know anything about what i was getting ready to jump right. into you didn't have all this stuff that's blinking <laughs> on your oh floor right gosh, now yeah. i had no idea yeah. it was i think if i would have known the reality of what i was stepping into i probably wouldn't have done it yeah. but but we were sh- so sure that God had moved us and told us to do it that it was okay. Yeah. Well, within a year's time, I got called from Twilight Paris. And here, once again, the relationships. The guy, Tim Ranson, that was doing lights for Truth okay, yeah. was doing lights for Twilight now. Okay. And he knew that you were in town? He knew I was in town. Okay. And he was like, hey, you got to you got to audition for Twyla. And so I did a, a little audition tape with a friend of mine, Ed Seidenkrantz, who was auditioning for a piano. And they called me and like, we love your plan. And, you know, we, we want you to come out for the, the tour that we're doing. And, and actually it was getting ready to go into a Christmas tour. And um, Twyla and I still laugh about that because, you know, I'm new in town. I don't have any gear hardly at all. I didn't have an acoustic guitar. I had to scrape to get an acoustic I can't even remember what I played back then. Um, but for the the tour, it was me and another keyboard player and Twyla and then her sister sang. So it was a, it was a small kind of deal, but she wanted me to play mandolin. So she goes, hey, can you play mandolin? I'm like, yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> Didn't have a mandolin. Go find a Melvay book. <laughs> back then, yeah, get yeah. the chords. Well, back then, Nashville Music on Nolensville Road, yeah. they would rent you instruments. Right. So I went and rented a, a mandolin, and then she's like, hey, can you play upright bass on one song for me for the tour? Which meant I was going to have to lug an upright bass around for a, you know, a month. Mm-hmm. I'm like, absolutely, I can play upright bass. So I went and got an upright bass, and played. I played it on a tune. Just had to learn it. Just had to get it together. Yeah. And it's funny because after after I had done that, For Him called me. Now all those guys were in Truth when I was in Truth. Right. Oh all yeah. All the For Him guys. Yeah. Right. So they're hey, we're doing a video uh, beyond the beyond the sky or beyond the s- stars or something. It's a it was a jazz tune that Craig Nelson played the bass part on, but they needed somebody to do the video. So I, I lugged the bass in there and and I actually learned Craig Nelson's part on bass 
because I was so afraid that somebody would see it and go, wow, that he's not really playing it. Yeah. Well. Which is smart. I did. I learned it. Yeah, that's smart, though. And uh, I I think I was, my, my hands were raw after oh, that goodness. video shoot. Yeah. Well, one days. thing, I want to stop real quick. No, and no. Say th- that the fact that you you took the time to learn a part exactly as it was recorded to do something for video because yeah. um, I did the show Nashville yeah. last oh, couple yeah. seasons. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, and people know about this already, but you know, when you do that show and you're having to learn these parts cause you're, re- you're playing to something that's already recorded. Right. But for that show specifically, you had to, it had to be dead on exact. Yeah. Because it's based off of, the town Nashville, which is a music city. And so they want everything to be exactly, they want to see that it, it looks like you're playing, yeah. that you are that artist or yeah. that you are that musician. That's playing right. That. Because if you go back and watch TV shows and people are playing an instrument to a song and you watch and they're just kind of like all over the place, you're like, that person doesn't know anything. Yeah. They haven't got a clue what to play. It takes away from the authenticity of the of the shot. Right. If you're so, just goofing around. Yeah. So if you can know the actual part, yeah. then that tells the the person watching yeah. that oh even if you're not a musician if you're not if you're watching and you're not a musician but you can see okay well that person's an, he's a real musician he knows what that's right he's doing that's right you know and so there's a huge just visually there's a big difference for that it, it help it helps the director yeah everybody I mean just the fact that you would learn that note for note yeah then they're not afraid to put the camera over there. Right. Because they go, well, that guy's got his act together. Yeah. And if you don't, then you're not going to get hired again. Yeah. They will not hire you again. <laughs> yeah. yeah that you've, got to, you've got to show up. That's what I'm saying. It's like things that you go, well, it doesn't really matter. It does matter. It does. All yeah. that matters. Yeah. You know? So when, okay, so you, you moved to Nashville. Yeah. Uh, before Twyla calls you. Yeah. So how long were you here before you got the call for Twyla? Um... Let me think about that. It was close to a year. Okay, so let's just say yeah. let's just say a year. Yeah, from coming down to visit with your friend, and tracking on a song in the studio for right. an album to going out with Twilight. What were you doing within that first year? Were you getting studio work? I did. I did a little bit of studio work. That was that Joe would call me, and a guy named Chris Thomason would call me. Okay, and few and far between. So what I would do is I put my name in at the uh, the temp place in yeah. town. Tammy got a job. Um, I think she was working for a place downtown Nashville, construction company, just a receptionist. Yeah. Yeah. But I would end up, you know, uh, they would call me. I, I remember several times I'd be at McGuire's Wax Factory, and I was the guy at the end of the line making sure the caps were tight, you know? Yeah. Just had to provide. Just paying the bills. Paying the bills. Yeah. So I did a lot of that. Uh, I di- I didn't do any teaching back then. Um, I guess because I was I was practicing a lot too. You know, just because I my chops to, in my mind weren't where they needed to be because I hadn't really been focused on playing. Mm-hmm. So I would practice a lot, and then I would take any kind of odd job that the temp co- company would call me, and I'd be like, "Yep, I'll be there." You yeah. know, and work four or five hours or whatever, and get a little paycheck and. You know, we just we just survived and yeah. just made it. So you moved to town with the the goal of being a musician, right? Yes. Of playing music. Yes. And so, is that encouraging? Is it discouraging for you in that time frame? Of you know, you're coming here with this specific thing in mind, yet I'm having to go out and do temp work and screw caps on in a wax factory, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. and I get it. I've you yeah. know I've. Yeah, I worked at this place. We call it the Cracker Factory. They actually did pins, but we call it the Cracker. I don't know why. <laughs> Just random thing. It's an inside joke between my wife and me. Um, so I get it. You know, yeah. I had to do all those things. But, right. You know, when someone encourages you, hey, move here. Yeah. Uh, this there's a place for you here to do this. Yeah. And you get here, and that's not really what you're you're doing. Yeah. You know, that's that's discouraging for a lot of people. So wh- yeah. How does how do you work through that? Well, I think. What I what I did was I I'm always thinking I'm being prepared for something. Yeah. There's a time um, that I have to pay my dues in some way. I can't just walk in and everybody go, "Oh, you're here! Yay! Right, yeah. Great!" That's a good point. You, so I look at it all as I mean, yeah, it can be discouraging for sure. Uh, you're standing at the end of a line, screwing on uh, 
tops and the the first day I went I didn't take gloves with me and my hands were just hmm. raw and at you're the end a guitar of the day. player. Yeah, and I'm a guitar player. I'm like going. My wife I, she saw my hands at the end of the day and she's like, "You know, you could probably wear gloves." I'm like, "Yeah." Note to self, uh, yeah. I'll do that next time. But in my mind and in my heart, I was thinking, "All right, there's something coming down the road here for me. I just need to stay with it." And I think the one thing you that all of us need to remember is when you're in those down times that don't neglect your practice time because, because that is so essential for when you show up the next time that you, you don't want to be like unprepared. You want to, you, you want to keep your chops up and, and just keep whatever it is. If it, it could be um, like, I remember when I learned the number system, I would sit with the radio on in a pad in a paper and I would, I would just let songs and I would write out the numbers to the songs yeah. while they were on the radio. So I wouldn't stop and pause or anything like that. I would just let them roll. Yeah. What I could get, I could get and, and I would get better and better at writing out songs. I think it's, that's a, an interesting point because when, when you're in the studio and you're playing for somebody and they you walk in you don't necessarily have a chart you know they provide a chart for you or they sit down and say okay we're going to play through the song and you're responsible to, to chart it out while you're listening right right and so you've got to be on top of it and write something out quickly right while you're listening to it right you know and all the players are kind of sitting there doing that together yeah. a lot of times yeah you know so the fact that you you took the time to learn how to do that yeah that's really that's smart. Yeah, never waste your downtime because it's 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 really if you've got downtime, there's a reason you should dig in, and whatever you feel your 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 weekend musically, you should strengthen that. Yeah, and that downtime can provide that opportunity, and it helped me because then, you know, when I started getting other things coming in, I felt like I was, I was back at least to where I could play and keep up and I wasn't mm -hmm. the weak link in the band, you know? Yeah, that's great. Uh, okay, so within that year, so you're doing some work. Yeah. Uh, music work. Yeah. Um, and then you're doing some tip work, whatever, and then you get the call for Twyla. Yeah. And that kind of that kind of puts you on the map, so to speak, you know, it starting did. to get some work. I didn't realize how, how much that was going to help me. Yeah. Um, you know, I would always loved Twyla's music since I'd, heard it and uh so i was honored to play for her and, and i wrote i wasn't really thinking of what that meant for me as uh, a player and maybe a status of where that put me i didn't realize it but um i think when twyla stopped touring um somewhere in 91 yeah christmas 91 she stopped and then 92 came then i got a call from stephen curtis chapman mm-hmm in April of 92 kind of out of the blue. But the first thing he said was I've, I saw you play with Twyla at creation festival. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I really like what you do. And he had already called Twyla to make sure it was okay that he could call me, which I thought was yeah. pretty upright. Yeah. And, um, he's like, we're doing a small festival tours, if you want to come out, I'd love to have you. So I was like, absolutely. This is awesome. So I went out with him and then that led to the great adventure tour. And I did that for a couple years. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm in town less than three years or so. And we win a Grammy for the live adventure. Right. Which I'm like going, okay, this is pretty crazy. Yeah, that's awesome. And, um, you know, touring with him and, all of a sudden, I have a, a very good reputation in town with people, and yeah, I'm getting more you're calls. you're playing with the, with the top artist, you know, one of the top artists in Christian music, you know, then who was, his career was, was skyrocketing at that point. Yeah. Um, and it, it was, it's funny, I went to that concert, I was in high school. Yeah. And so I saw you perform in Memphis at the, at the Pyramid. That's uh, at the, During the, the Great Adventure Tour. And so I've been watching you since I was in high school, oh my which gosh. is awesome. I know well, I'm old. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, old, I'm we're older. <laughs> we're, we're not older. old. We're older. No, we're older. Uh, more seasoned, I guess, yes. is the right thing. 
but uh, I remember watching you and it's like, dude, this guy is, cause I was a guitar player, you yeah. know, I, you, I don't know if you know this or not. And people are sick of hearing this, I'm sure, but, but I'm from Paducah, Kentucky. Oh yeah. We're Steve. I'm, yeah. His dad was my guitar teacher. Oh my gosh. That's <laughs> so, amazing. So Steve and I, you know, both learned from his dad, obviously. And so my style is very similar to his. Yeah. And so, and he's been my mentor, you know, amazing. most of my life. And, and so getting to watch anybody that was playing for him, you know, I'm just like, I'm, I'm eagle-eyed on you guys yeah. watching and, and learning and trying to see how you guys are playing things. And cause that's what I wanted to do, yeah. you know? So that, it was just a, a, a fun, a fun thing. Too. That's a, that's, that's so cool. That would, that it really was a great tour. And I learned so much, like, just like being in truth, uh, you, you just learn so much from when, when the caliber of players and musicianship and everything is, is elevated you 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 have to get up to that level yeah so like okay can you kind of go into some details like what are some things that you learned maybe on that tour you yeah know, or with twyla whatever kind of moving up the echelon of of caliber of, of players you're with and the types of tours you're playing and the shows you're playing yeah and things like that like what changes well th- there is the you're expected to number one you're expected to play the parts exactly like the record the only way you wouldn't play it exactly like the record is if the artist says play it like the record but i want you to do this or have a little freedom here at the solo you can take your liberty at the solo or whatever so you really have to play like if if i was auditioning for um a band today an artist i would learn not only my guitar part, but I would learn all the other guitar parts. So I, I knew them note for note. I would be so aware of the drum part and the keyboard part, the vocal parts. I mean, I would just dissect the whole the whole song. And so when I went when I would go in for the audition, I would be so prepared, over prepared, if you will. Not only would I know the parts, but I would have the exact sound or as close to mm-hmm. humanly possible. So whatever that means for me, gear-wise, um, I'm, I'm not a fan of going into debt to get gear, but sometimes you might have to, you know, if you're on a gig like that's a big gig, you're, you might have to, if you don't have the money right away, you might have to take a small loan or business loan or whatever and get the gear. Pay it off quickly, though, youngsters. Yeah, we don't... We don't uh, recommend debt on this show. <laughs> yeah, no, so, I mean, no, I, 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 I wouldn't. But there, there were there was a couple times where I had to get some gear yeah. to get the sounds sure. that I was looking for, and just pay it off ASAP. Yeah. Because sometimes things happen so fast. So here is a good point to what you're saying: put some money aside now. Yeah. So when you have those gear emergencies, mm-hmm. you can go get it. So I would I would have the sounds identical. Yeah. And. Then I would show up to the the gig and or the rehearsals and just be ready to go. That's what I learned with especially with Steven. Okay. Because in today's world, a lot of bands don't have the luxury to rehearse as much as we used to back then. Because from what I understand, with the live touring, the budgets aren't as good as they used to be. Mm-hmm. But back then, Steven, we would rehearse for two, three weeks, we might have rehearsed a whole month before we even did our first concert because he wanted everything to be exactly how it needed to be so that the first time we play the show, the audience is not getting like a rehearsal. Right. It's like, we're, we're ready. It's yeah. like, and so I took that experience with Steven for my next tour with Twyla because I did the the next tour with her was beyond a dream. And she was actually, she had got us in control was out and that was a big song for her. So they wanted the band to sound just like the record. So uh, I worked it out with their management. I said, I want to rehearse the band for two weeks before we even see Twyla. So that when she walks in, it's like she's, she's playing along with her record. Mm -hmm. So there's no, because there's nothing more frustrating than an artist sitting there while guys are mumbling through their parts mm-hmm. if they don't have them down. Yep. 
and so um, in today's world, I think the band guys need to take it upon themselves to to really rehearse because I think they don't have that kind of luxury to rehearse two weeks before you go out and do a concert. Some do, but some don't. Yeah. So the, all the band guys should just really get it together so that when they show up, the artist feels as, as comfortable as they can to do their best. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that's great. Yeah. Great. That's yeah. Really good for, for people that are trying, you know, they're working towards getting to that level start that's a great starting point yeah great starting have point to. so you've who all have you played with you've played with i mean you've done a lot of studio work now mm-hmm. and a lot of um live work so who who are some artists that you have played with just that, that our audience would know of well over the in, years? In, in that in, in in that era of time uh it was twyla stephen curtis chapman russ taff susan ashton phillips craig and dean avalon crystal lewis Bob Carlisle. Uh, I did s- songs for uh, recording uh, for Amy Grant. Uh, one song with Martina McBride, um, "Point of Grace." Now, is all of this now word of mouth because they've seen you out with Twyla and with Stephen, and yes, so people just start calling you. Yes, it's all relationship based, and yes. people know you. They know your work and yes. your work ethic and things like that. Yes, yeah, that's exactly so, right. Yep, and. If I saw any of those today, it would be a, a great reunion. Yeah. Just because I, I feel like I left um, and moved moved on or for whatever reason they stopped touring or whatever. But I feel like my relationship is is still on a very positive foundation with mm-hmm. each one of those people I've mentioned. Yeah. That's great. So let's talk about studio work for a minute. Um, was the, the majority of early on... The majority of work you were getting was because of your friend Joe, right? Yeah, early nineties. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and was was it always through him that you were getting work, or at what point did other people start calling you for studio work, and how did how did those things come about for you necessarily? Well, after I had started touring with Twyla the first time, I started getting other people calling me, and um, for studio for studio work. Yeah. Yes, and uh, a lot of it early on was different custom records and things like that. And people would come into town and I, I, I don't remember a lot of the, the producers that I work with back then. Um, other than like Reggie Ham, mm-hmm. uh, Don Cook. Um, I'm trying to think of some others that uh, Dennis Deering would call me for stuff back, you know, th- through that progression through the nineties. Right. Um, it was after Twyla that it seemed like my name started to get out a yeah. little bit more and I would get... So bo- both sides things. of the world, studio or live, it's all word of mouth kind of thing pretty yes. much. Okay, let me ask you this though, because okay. I I hear all the time, uh, and I've seen it work for some people and not so much for others. I hear all the time that you can either be a session player or a road player, mm. you can't be both, mm. you know. And and I've heard the pros and cons for both both of those yeah. arguments. Yeah. Uh, and you are one of the people that have been successful at doing both. So, why do you think? Like, why do you think that is? Like, why have you been able to be successful at something that a lot of people say you can't do that? Yeah. Is there? Well, I think for the 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 touring musician. Um, you have to have the mindset we were talking about earlier where you have to be the guy that, that recreates the parts. Right. The session guy, you have to be the creator of the parts. Sure. And for some reason, I have that knack to create parts and come up with things. And I think it goes back to the time with truth is because I'm always thinking about what works in a song. And so that makes me creative. And people are like, well, don't you get burned out? Or do you, you feel like you... You just, you know, you played on so many songs that don't you just get tired of, but I'm like, well, every song is, if I, if I look at every song is a brand new kind of situation. Yeah. I tell some people, uh, sometimes I mentally even think like I've, I'm just picking up the guitar for the first time today. Like mm-hmm. I try and get myself in that mindset where it's, it's the first song I've ever played on. Mm. So I'm like, okay, what am I going to do in the song? Yeah. I get excited. I'm like, okay. 
well, there, oh, there's a little part that I could do in the bridge or there's, you know, so, so to be able to do both, you have to be able to be, to recreate as a touring musician, but then you have to be able to create as a session player. And I think all of the experiences that you have that you can draw upon feed the creativity mm -hmm. part. So. so I think one of the reasons I hear that argument that you can't do both is because, and maybe it's what your priorities are, are supposed to, or wanting to be. Mm. What are you wanting to be? Are you wanting to be a session player mm. or are you wanting to be a touring player? Because if you're wanting to be a session player and like that's your goal, right? Yeah. Um, full time. But somebody calls you and says, hey, I need someone to go on the road and you need the money. You go out and start being a road warrior for people. Then producers or artists, whatever, see that, well, he's not available. He's out here. So we're right. not going to call him anymore. We're going to call the people that are, are in town and available. Right. So therefore, you become a road player. And then you have to, if you decide to come off, then you have to rebuild those relationships with people, you know, yeah. as or vice versa. Yeah. You know, and you've been able to kind of circumvent that and kind of live with one foot in both worlds kind of consistently, it feels like. Yeah, def definitely since since 2000, way leaning on the sessions. But, and, and what you're saying is so true about, this was very true, I, I think especially um, in the 90s, where if you were on the road, you weren't getting called to do the sessions normally. Mm -hmm. So what I did back then was um, I, when the ADATs came out, I took an ADAT on the road with me. Yeah, mm -hmm. explain what an ADAT is for our listeners. <laughs> just, oh my gosh. Just, brief, just briefly, what, what is so, it? So an ADAT is basically a recorder that you can record eight tracks at a time, and it was on a VHS tape. So there were times when I was with Twyla that I, we would show up at the hotel, and somebody had FedExed me a VHS tape to... And I would take all the gear off of the bus, run into my room. Usually I'd have to put the bed up against the window to create a sound barrier, set up my mic, set up my direct rig. Back then, it, you know, direct rig was hard to get a good sound. Yeah, they didn't have Kempers and things like that back then. No, I, it, was, it was tricky. Yeah. I think I had a Palmer DI or something I was doing. I can't remember. But I would, I would record my parts onto... Because a, a lot of those were, they're called sound alikes, where you would do them in three keys. So say if Point of Grace had a song out, uh, whatever that was, then, then, then I would have to do that song in a major third up and then a major third up from that. So it would be in three keys. And so I do my part and then I would FedEx the tape back. So that's kind of a... Uh, for, so you're recording a session yeah, for them. On the road. Oh, so you're like a pioneer on the, <laughs> the... I was totally trying to do everything wow. I could, you know, and it kind of, that mindset... Because people do that all the time now. Like, that's, right. a, that's a normal thing nowadays for people. Totally normal. You know, because we got digital, everything's all digital, and, and Kemper amps and direct amps and into a computer, and that's the end of it, and you're done. But back then, that was a huge deal to do that. It was very tricky. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I, I did that... Because there was a stigma that if you're a road guy, you couldn't do sessions. And it, now, because of the technology today, it's it's not that far apart anymore. Right. Like I know great guitar players that go out and do gigs on the road, and they're still very active. Yeah, doing... they can set up their sessions right there on a tour bus and yeah. set, set and track and... Yeah, because it's direct, it doesn't even affect if you're a, an electric player. Yeah, the, base. the, wor the worlds are closer together now yeah. than they used to be okay. because of that reason. Yeah, because of the technology, and and it's great because um, as a musician today, you 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 need to be able to do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. It's just it's just necessary. You you need to be able to go out and do a live gig, if you know every once in a while, but then you you need to be able to do a track at the house, and then you need to be able to go and sit in. At, at the tracking room and play a session with all the guys and, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. So. Well, nowadays you are, cause we're friends on Facebook yeah. and I think every single day you pop up in my timeline at a different studio. Like every single day yeah. you are somewhere recording a session for some artist yeah. or producer or whatever it is. Um, you know, and 
like this is this is full time for you. You don't. Yes. There's nothing else that you have to do. Yeah. If you don't want to. Yeah. You know, which is a great place to be. But you've spent your you spent, you know, years, 20, 30 years. Yeah. Building yourself up to this point. Right. So, what would you encourage listeners that, uh, you know, musicians that are trying to get into this world, whether it be for for uh, session work or playing live for people or, or a mixture of the two. Yeah. You know, what would be some advice you'd have for them to, to be able to get to the point where you are now? Well, in, in today's world, um, I think one of the things you have to do and have to know as a, as a guitarist is you've got to know how to record yourself either, um, on Pro Tools or Logic or Persona Studio One, or Nuendo, or Cubase. I have three different DAWs on my hard drive. Mm-hmm. You just have to know how to record yourself. Yeah. That's the first thing I would say. Um, and of course, what we talked about earlier, you've got to be skilled and, and skillful, and you have to keep up your your chops. If you're, if you're lacking in some area, focus on that area. Get yourself better. If, if, you're, if your ear is not well adept to picking up lines and songs and things like that get some ear training and and get your ear together where you can listen and hear things and write them out quickly and um let's talk about that just for a second yeah so ear training yeah you know that's easy for us to say yeah get some ear training yeah but for someone who who struggles with hearing something how would you explain to them what to do to get to get ear training well, here, here's a simple way to do it. And, and I do this on my, my online site. I just take a little portion of the lesson and I play random notes. I let the note ring for a couple bars. And in that time, you have to find that note. That, okay. That's so simple. But the more you let your ear find those notes... It's just like a muscle. You, you'll build that muscle up and it'll get stronger and you'll be quicker. Now what I'm doing is I'm starting to play two notes at a time and then they have to find both those notes and how they relate. And And then I'll go through a series where I'll play perfect fifths or perfect fourths or thirds, you know, so they can start to hear that relationship. So if you don't have any way to do that, um, here's what you can do. Take your guitar Record random notes into your DAW and then forget about it. Walk away, maybe stockpile a bunch of these little notes, sequences, and then go back and play them back and make yourself refine those notes and find them as quickly as you can. That's the beginning stages. Okay. Then what you want to do is take a song like Happy Birthday. Play Happy Birthday. On your instrument. Everybody's going to say, ah, oh, that's easy. Okay, I challenge you right now. <laughs> yeah. Play Happy Birthday and find those notes and be able to play it in any key, in any position on the guitar. It's tricky. Yeah. So, but there's melodies you've heard since you were a little kid. So what I would say is like even Twinkle Twinkle Little Star or London Bridge is Falling Down. Any of those nursery rhymes that are in your brain already, Translate those over to the guitar. See how quickly you can actually use your ear to find those notes. Mm-hmm. Then the next step is put on records and start copying the vocals first. Learn vocal melodies. Right. Then start to learn the guitar licks. Then start to, to harmonically figure out the chords that are in all these things will increase your ability as as a musician and your ear will get sharper and sharper the more you do it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Thank you for, yeah. for doing that. Yeah. So, um, and I know I kind of cut you off in mid-thought as far as like just advice in general for, for people. So um, just to work on the ear training thing a bit. So all that's great information. Thank okay. you for oh, sharing yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Totally. Uh, now... One of the other things that you're doing nowadays is you just you mentioned this briefly, just a little bit, is that you've started an online guitar teaching course. Yes. And and I'm a guitar teacher as well, like we said. So yeah. I'm always, and I'm always learning. One of the things I think oh. you can never, never say too much about is your 
you need, always need to be learning. It doesn't yes. matter how good you are. Oh, yeah. There's always some, someone's always better than you. Yeah. You know, so learn from someone who's f- further along yeah. the road than you are. So what is this your online guitar teaching course that you're you're doing now? Well, I I appreciate you asking me about that and I'm really excited about it's called davecleveland.com. Okay. And there's uh, there's actually a Facebook page for it and then the website is davecleveland.com. But I'm super excited about it because people for years have asked me, hey, can you teach a lesson? Can you do private lessons? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I would love to do that, but, um, you know, my st- schedule in the studio stays really busy. And, and uh, so it's hard for me to break away to do that. And so I was like, well, instead of just, you know, a one, having one day and teaching one person, why don't I come up with a series of lessons that will benefit a lot of different people at one time and um, so i came up with it's called essential guitars it's a 52 week lesson program and really all it does is is it helps any musician at any level build up their chops to play the instrument so that when they're challenged with a song there they already have the facility to do it right so i work on i always have a warm-up because the one thing that i i I don't know i get bored with different warm-ups so in this program you have 52 different warm-ups that will confuse your muscle memory to no end (laughs) so if you do this program you're going to get some great chops and um then I deal with reading because a lot of people, a lot of musicians don't know how to read. Right. Even if you're a great um, guitar player, but you don't know how to read, uh, it can it can cost you some gigs sometimes. Right. So I really like everybody to know how to read. So I take you through how to read. I teach you every instrument on the, the, the neck of the guitar, where it's located. You know, on the guitar, you can play the, the E at the the open, then the fifth fret, and then the ninth fret, and then the fourteenth fret, and then somewhere up higher, yeah, twentieth yeah. fret or something, nineteenth yeah. fret. So I, I I show guys how to 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 get a, an understanding of reading. It's not the end all be all, you know. Hopefully, what they'll do with my program is they'll take it and use it, and then they'll they'll take lessons on a regular basis with a regular you know yeah. teacher that can help reinforce what I'm trying to, to yeah. show them. So they'll call me after they've watched you. Yeah, they'll go, hey, I'm, I'm, I've got, I'm starting to get my chops together and things, but I need to know some specific things mm-hmm. that I, I would like to get from a, a one-on-one. Right. You yeah. know? So I, I'm just going to try and be a, a great resource. Uh, I, I do ear training, and then I do... Uh, I work with triads because I think a lot of people... Especially electric guitar players, when they start out, they they feel like they have to play all the notes, all six strings, all the time. And what I learn in especially in truth is that the the, the small partial chords, the triads, they fit in and out uh, of keyboard voicings better than a big full chord mm-hmm. does. And if you're if you're in a worship band and you have like a rhythm guitar player, and then you have an acoustic guitar player. That's a lot of sonic information that they're probably going to gang up on in their part. So, so if you can learn to play smaller bits, it will help you to develop better as a as a parts guitar player, and it will keep you sonically in a space where uh, the sound man can turn you up in the mix because it's like oh he's doing something kind of cool right and it's not getting in the way of the vocal it's not getting in the way of the keyboard or the other guitars and yeah so i teach that and then at the end of every lesson i teach a new lick and sometimes they're tricky and other times they're very straight ahead so i'll, I'll teach you a lick and then i'll create a chord progression that you and i can jam over for the next five or ten minutes you can loop it on there or whatever so you can apply the guitar lick that you just learned into a musical situation and because you're you know in the privacy of your own home you can mess up and make mistakes and whatever and experiment yeah but i'll take you through all of these different um sonic and stylistic 
chord progressions you know that's awesome so it's fun well i'm we'll put a link to that in the show notes so that people can go check cool. check that out and thank you, you know, learn some new some new things Thanks. from you that'd be great so yeah uh man thank you so much for your time yeah this Marty, has been awesome pleasure yeah so so much great stuff to learn and to know about for people to apply to their careers and hopefully they'll take even if they just take a fraction of what we talked about today you know, will make a huge difference in, in what they're doing. I, any last words of wisdom from you that? Well, I'm honestly, I'm just very thankful and very humbled that I can look back over my life and, and just, just see that, you know, there's a plan and mm-hmm. God's got us yeah. and, uh, you know, just do what we're we're called to do, and and uh, you know things happen, and and uh, and just you know this moment here with you asking me questions, it 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 really humbles me uh, that somebody would even want to hear what I have to say. So I'm thankful for that. So well, I'm thankful for thanks you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, God bless you. Yeah. and Have a great day. Okay. Thanks, Marty. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Didn't I tell you this was going to be awesome? Dave is such a cool guy, and what a heart for God. I love that he's willing to share his heart and his story with us and just encourage everyone listening that's looking to get into music, into working in this business, in this industry. It doesn't matter if you're a guitar player or a different type of musician or the business side of it, whatever it is that you're looking to do, you can take what he's talked about and figure out a way to apply that to your career. And so I hope that you will do that, that you're taking this seriously, and that you're able to to use this to improve what it is that you're trying to do in this business. So remember, Edenbrook Productions is here to help. If you need consulting services via phone call, Skype, or FaceTime, be sure to let us know how we can help you to begin to make a living in the music industry.